welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. As Americans, we are steeped in a culture that tells us that with enough hard work, we can do or be anything. And that leaks over into our spiritual life. We think that with enough hard work, we can overcome our sin and earn our way into heaven. Problem is, that's not how it works. Staff member Jeff Norris starts his series, The Pattern of the Gospel, with this message entitled Gospel Vision and Gospel Death, which covers 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 through chapter 4, verse 11. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning. There are many, many things that I'm thankful for in my life. Following Steve Brown preaching is not one of those that's at the top, at the top of my list. Hey, Jeff, why don't you follow that guy? Um, I, I joke about that. I, I really am excited to be with you all and thank, thankful for the opportunity to, to open the word together for the next uh, three weeks and see what God would have for us. And I'm excited not just because I get to be up here, but also um, really more so because of where I think God is leading us. Um, as I was preparing weeks and even a couple months ago about uh, what the Lord may have for us in these three weeks together, uh, I'm excited and encouraged, uh, at least by what he's done in my own heart. And my prayer, my hope is that in so doing, uh, through me, that it will be a blessing to you as well. And some of the things that I'm going to be talking about, a lot of what I'm going to be talking about and where the text is going to be leading us for many of you is going to be review. Uh, it's going to be this, this real tempting, uh, aspect of it to, to say, tell me something I don't know. Uh, but here's the deal. I have found to be true in my own life and in my own heart that when I go back to the, uh, the basics of the faith, the gospel, it, it, those are the times that I experience the, the more rich, significant times of intimacy with the Lord in my own life. For others of you, it's going to be fresh. It's going to be new. It's, it's going to be something maybe you haven't heard before. And whether we're on that side or we're on this side or where, wherever we are in that spectrum, my prayer, my hope is that it will fall on fresh ears for all of us. So um, let me pray for us and pray that God would do that. And then we'll dive into what he has for us today. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this time together. And Lord, we give it to you. And we trust and ask that you will do exactly what we've just sung about, what we heard Laura lead us in, in terms of uh, just to listen have you speak to us in a, in a whisper. Lord, I pray that you would whisper deep truths into our hearts and press them in deep into our hearts. Holy Spirit, that you would fill me as your servant and your messenger, even though broken as I am, that you would use me for your glory to communicate great truth this morning. We pray all in the powerful and matchless name of Jesus. Amen. As I was thinking about leading into where we're going this morning, I, I had a thought, and it's kind of weird when you hear it, so I'll just go ahead and say it. I thought about of all the weird, crazy, sometimes humorous ways that people have died. Don't judge me yet. Um, anybody ever see the Darwin Awards or get emails or the Darwin Awards? The Darwin Awards are, are these awards that they give out to people who uh, do really, really stupid, crazy things and end up losing their lives in the process. Now, listen, I am not making light of that. Those are people made in the image of God. I'm not cracking jokes about them, but there are things sometimes that people do that end up costing them their lives that we go, what, what are you thinking? What, what, in the, what in the world was your rationale? What was your logic before you did that? 
Uh, and, and sometimes we as a human race will get so captivated with things, sometimes things that, don't, that we don't even know if they're real or not. And give our lives for. Them. Let me give you a couple examples. Uh, in 1892, there was a Dutchman who lived out in Arizona. I don't even know if Arizona was a state back then, but what is Arizona now? And what is called, and this is the coolest name for a mountain range ever, the Superstitious Mountains. I didn't know those existed, but that is awesome that that's a name of a mountain range. But it's outside of Phoenix, Arizona. And this guy, this Dutchman, supposedly before he died, buried some gold in a mine shaft and left notes about it to find it, for people to find it. Now, for all we know, he could have been a crazy old man that said, I'm gonna mess with people before I die and wrote some notes and he never had any gold. We don't know. But all we know is that it became somewhat of a folklore and it became something that people became captivated by to the extent that estimates of eight to 10,000 people over the last 100 years have looked for this treasure, this gold. And many of those people have died. Hundreds of those people have died. In fact, as recently as 2010, there were three men who went out together into the superstitious mountains to find this gold that is supposedly there and they never came back. They found their body, uh, bodies in 2012, two years later. A more famous one is the El Dorado gold that was supposedly buried in a lake in Colombia, South America. And about 100 years ago, there were over 100 men who were trying to drain that lake to find the gold, and they all died in the process, every one of them in, in a flood that happened through that. Now, these are things that they didn't even know if they were real, right? But yet they said they became so captivated by the thought of what could be that promised so much worth and so much value that we would be willing to risk our lives to get that, even if it's there. And we look upon those people and we go, man, you're crazy. What are you doing? What are you thinking? What was your rationale? Isn't there an easier way or a better way or whatever? But I I think this, I think that sometimes God looks at what we chase after at the heart level. These things that are so valuable to us apart from Christ. And he goes, what are you doing? What are you thinking? What's your logic? See, here's the problem that you and I have, all of us, is that our hearts are so marred by sin that we will very often chase after things that we deem to be worthy that aren't really that valuable at all. And what we have to do over and over and over again, not just once a week, not just every now and then when we have a great quiet time with the Lord, but every single day throughout the day, re-engage our hearts with the value and the beauty of Jesus over and over again. And so that's where we're headed this morning. If you will, take out your, uh, your notes that were inserted in your bulletin. And I want you to, I want to draw your attention to something. I put something at the top there that's going to be there. Uh, each week, these next three weeks, these five C's that I'll call them, that's really innovative of me. I couldn't think of a better name, but the five C's will be at the top of your insert for your notes there. And let me read through these real quick. So you kind of have an idea of where we're going both today and in the weeks to come. This is my prayer for our time together. This is what we're asking God to do in us, not just in these weeks together, but every day of our lives as followers of Christ, that we would be a people who are becoming, first of all, more captivated by the immeasurable worth of Jesus. Secondly, that we'd be a people that are becoming more convinced that dying to self is the only appropriate response to the worth of Jesus. That's where we're headed this morning. Those are the two that we'll hit this morning. Next week, we'll look at the third one, that we'd be a people becoming more concerned about eternity and the glory that is to come. And then lastly, in two weeks, more compelled by the love of Christ and more committed to his mission.
Now, this morning, you're going to, as we get into the text and as you get into, we get into some of the things I'm going to throw out at you, I'm going to be using the term the gospel a lot. The gospel, the gospel, the gospel. And here's something I think we're guilty of, particularly in our tradition and denomination. It's, it's become pretty common for us to throw that term around as somewhat of a buzz phrase or buzzword, even though certainly it's a biblical term. And it means good news. Gospel literally means good news. But I think we're guilty of throwing that term around a lot without explaining exactly what we mean by it. We'll say the gospel changed me or we need to press the gospel more into our hearts. So we need to center our lives more on the gospel. And we have studies that are called gospel-centered living and gospel-centered life. And I think I would be willing to bet that there's many people in a room this size who if we do that, if we use that language without explaining exactly what we mean, we, we run the risk of people walking out of here going, I heard the term the gospel a lot, but what does that mean? And so I don't want to make any assumptions So I want to tell you exactly what the gospel is before we get started. Here's the gospel. The gospel starts off by telling us this. You and I and every person who's ever walked the face of the earth from the beginning of time until Christ comes again, every single one of us are woeful sinners. And what that term means, sinners, is not just that we make mistakes. And it's not just that we're imperfect. You could walk out uh, to Old Alabama Road right here and you could flag someone down and you could walk up to their window and you say, hey, I got a couple questions. They would think you're weird for doing it, but you would do it anyway. And you would say, hey, have you made mistakes before? Sure. Are you perfect? No, no, there's no way I'm perfect. Okay, well, then you're a sinner. Hold up now. Don't judge me. Don't judge me. I, I didn't say I was a sinner. Something, there's something intrinsically within us that whether you're a believer or not, whether you follow Jesus or not, there's something that we know carries this weight behind the word sinner, right? There's a heaviness to it. And there's a reason for that because it doesn't just mean that we make mistakes and that we're imperfect. Here's what it means. It means that every single person, all of us have offended a holy God. We've offended him because of our sin. And it's not something that he can turn a blind eye to. And the, and the, the news gets worse. R- by the way, when you're sharing the gospel with someone, when you're understanding the gospel, please understand that there's got to be good, uh, bad news before there's good news. Right? You have to go there. If we just walk up to people and say, hey, man, Jesus loves you and died for you, they're just going to go, okay, great, because that's not necessarily good news or bad news. It's news. But we got to give bad news first because when the good news is weighed against the bad news, it becomes glorious, extravagantly good. And so it gets worse than just, it's not just that we've offended a holy God, it's that this God and his just righteousness and his holiness, he has to judge sin. And so every single one of us not only have offended God, but we all deserve the wrath of God because he has to punish sin if he's going to remain holy and just as the judge over all the earth, reigning as he does. And here's the last part of the bad news. There's nothing we can do about it. There's not one thing that you and I can do about it. There's no amount of church attendance. There's no amount of good behavior or behavior modification. There's no amount of morality. There's no amount of serving in some philanthropic event. There's no uh, giving an amount of money to this, this, or this that we could ever come before the Lord and prop it up before him and say, look at all that I've done. And that he would look at that and go, oh, that's really awesome. Don't worry about your sin. Yeah, your heart's still tainted by sin, and a lot of the reasons that you did that were tainted for selfish reasons, and that's sin. But you know what? I'm really impressed with your performance. God will never do that. Because no matter what we do, we cannot change 
our sin problem. We can't rectify it. And so the glorious good news is this, and I'll just quote a Bible verse for you. Uh, uh, Ephesians 2.4. But God, being rich in mercy and with the great love with which he has loved us, even while we were dead in our sin, has made us alive together again with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. God looked upon our predicament and he had such mercy and compassion and grace and love for his people that he came and did what we could not do. He lived the perfect life that we can't live and then he died the death and took the wrath of God that we should have died and gotten. And then not only that, but he rose from the dead, defeating the penalty of death so that through faith in Christ, we may have that same resurrection from the dead and be new creations in Christ. That is good news and that's the gospel. Now listen, when that gospel begins to permeate and penetrate and saturate our hearts, things change. We become different people. We're going to look at a verse in two weeks that says, for those that are in Christ, they are new creations. The old is gone, the new has come. Why? Because the gospel is in us. The spirit of God is in us. We have believed upon the gospel and we have, it, have been captivated by Jesus. And that's exactly where we're headed this morning. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians. If you've got your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn there in your actual physical Bible. If you don't have your Bible, that's totally fine. It's printed in your insert where your notes are. And then if not that, then it'll be on the screen as well. And where we're going to go for these next two weeks is we will, by the end of our time together, we will have walked through two, cha- two chapters, chapters 4 and 5 in 2 Corinthians. But before we get into chapter 4 today, we've got to get a little bit of a context in chapter 3. So I'm going to be reading, I'll start reading in chapter 3, verse 16 of 2 Corinthians. It says this, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is a spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We'll stop right there for now. And let me give you the first point that I want you to to get this morning. Uh, There is a vision that the gospel gives. There's a vision that the gospel gives. You'll see it in the text here, verse 16, where we started reading. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And then later on, you see that what is the veil removed for us to be able to see? To see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But let me give you a little bit more context of what's going on here. You'll you'll notice we picked up in a verse where it begins with the word but. But when the veil is removed... Uh, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And if there's a but there, then there's something connected to that beforehand that is important to make sure we know and understand. So what Paul is doing, the Apostle Paul, writing 2 Corinthians, is he's reminding his readers of what happened in Exodus 33 and 34. And what happened in Exodus 33 and 34 is you had Moses up on the mountain of Mount Sinai with God in his presence. 
This is the second time that Moses is getting the Ten Commandments, getting the tablets. In Exodus 20, he had gotten the tablets the first time. And he'd gone up on the mountain and gotten the tablets from God. But he comes off the mountain and in just a short time that Moses had been up there, the people of God had already, with their wayward hearts, not unlike ours, had already shaped a golden calf and begun to worship it while Moses was up on the mountain and worshiping something other than this God who had just miraculously led them out of slavery in Egypt. And he sees them worshiping this golden calf and he throws, uh, in his anger, and his disgust, he throws the tablets down. And so this is the second time. So God is, this is round two of God saying, okay, come up on the mountain and let's do this again. So in chapter 33, it's the account of where Moses uh, asked God to see his glory. He says, can I, can I see your glory, God? And God says, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll pass before you, but you can't see my face because anyone who sees the face of God dies. Why? Because what I just explained, he's holy and we're not. And so God, the whole time he's with Moses on the mountain, has enveloped himself and kind of shattered himself in a cloud so that Moses could be in his presence without dying. And so in this moment, God takes away the cloud, if you will, and he passes before Moses, but he says, what I'll do is I'll put you in the cleft of a rock with my hand and I'll cover you up. And as I'm passing by, as I'm past you, I will take my hand off and you will get just a glimpse of my backside. And you'll get to see just a glimpse of my glory. And then in chapter 34, he's on the mountain. He's on the mountain for, thir- uh, for 40 days and 40 nights. And, and by the way, what, I just can't imagine what that would have been like to just be there in the presence of God for 40 days and 40 nights. We get two paragraphs, really, of the exchange that they said with each other in chapter 34 of Exodus. I'm going, there, there had to have been a lot more than said than that, but we'll never know until maybe we're in heaven one day and maybe they'll tell us. I don't know. Maybe they won't. Maybe that's just between Moses and God. But there, he's on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And he comes off the mountain. When he comes back down with the tablets, he's glowing because he's... He's radiating, he's reflecting the Shekinah glory of God that he's been in. And and there's this radiance about Moses and it freaks the people out. And so to not scare them, to not freak them out, he puts a veil over his face. And he wears a veil everywhere he goes except for when he's in the tabernacle meeting with God. Now, this is what Paul is referring to. And in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 3, he starts talking about the Jewish people in particular. And he says, to this day when Moses is read, when the law is read, they don't understand. Why? Because there's a veil over their eyes and they can't see and perceive and understand it. But then he says in verse 16, he steps back from just talking about the Jewish people. And he's talking about all people, including Gentiles, Jews and Gentiles. And he says this, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Here's the beautiful thing that happens. When the gospel begins to permeate our hearts, to sink into our hearts, God removes this veil as we place our faith in Jesus. And we begin to see God and all of his glory through Christ and the beauty of Jesus in ways that we never did before. And we're captivated. We're blown away. We're mesmerized by the beauty of Jesus. You'll notice in chapter 4, verse 4, listen to this. It says this. In their case, he's talking about non-believers, those who don't follow Jesus. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. That's Satan. Has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to do what? To keep them from seeing The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So if you're not in Christ, you still have the veil over your eyes. You can't see, you can't understand, you can't perceive Jesus and his beauty. You don't see the glory of God through Christ. It's kind of like this. When we first moved here in June, uh, we've been here about eight months, and 
we moved from Alabama and our kids, and both us and our kids were sad to leave where we were living in Alabama because we loved it there, had a great community there, great church, all that. And we wanted to give our kids something uh, to, to really love the city that they were moving to. And so within the first few days of us being here, we, we took them down to the aquarium. And we go through the aquarium and they're loving it. And it's just unbelievable. If you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. It's just an amazing thing to see. But we, we do everything there is to do. And we've got a little bit of a, about an hour or so between uh, when we were finishing up and dinner. And it's like, what else can we do? And we see that there's a movie that you can see within the aquarium. It's a 4D movie. I didn't know what 4D meant, but apparently it's, it's even cooler than 3D. Because not only are you seeing 3D on the screen, but it's also like experiential in the sense that there's a fish that like blows water at you and when that happens like mist comes up in your face and you it scares you and you go where is that coming from and all this and so it's experiential as you're watching these 3d figures well we come in and I grab my glasses on the way in and my kids and my wife we all grab our glasses and we're sitting there and we put our glasses on and the movie starts and I'm watching all these people around me ooh and ah and I'm watching them see something that I'm not seeing and I'm looking at it and I'm going man what am I missing like this is not a good movie it's blurry. There's nothing coming at me. Like this is, this is, I want my money back kind of thing. And I'm kind of slow. It should have clicked a lot quicker for me. But eventually about five minutes in, I'm like, okay, something's wrong with these glasses. I got faulty glasses. So Samuel, my son's sitting next to me and I should have warned him, but I didn't. I take his off. I put him here, take these. I put them on and I'm like, oh, this is what everybody's seeing that I can't see. This is really cool. I get it now. This is, this is really awesome. And about that time, Samuel says, give me those back. And he puts them back on and I watch the rest of the movie with my 2D glasses. But I saw it for a minute. I go, I get it. I see this. I see the awesomeness of what those around. This is a picture of what happens for those of us. There's, there are people who have uh, the ability to see what God created us to see. But all of us, every single one of us are born with faulty glasses. We're all born blind, all of us. There's no one who is born a Christian. There's no one who is able to see and perceive the glory of God in the face of Jesus from the very beginning. God has to remove this veil to help us see his beauty. And so, you know, it's so tempting to judge those who don't know Jesus. Man, how could you not see this? How could you make that decision? How could you be so stupid or irresponsible or how could you believe that politically or how could you whatever it may be man we are so quick to judge and we have to be reminded that the God of this world has blinded the minds of non-believers and the only reason you and I see what we see is because of the grace of God he's opened our eyes and we see Jesus in all of his beauty and we say wow there's some of us in the room this morning who've never seen that beauty there's others of us in this in this room who have seen it at some point in the past but if we're being honest with ourselves we would say you know what it's been a long time since I've felt captivated by the beauty of Christ some of us came to Christ in college and we remember our college days as, man, those were, those were spiritually fervent days. And I went to this stadium and heard that great speaker and there was an incredible music leader there. And man, I got chill bumps and stuff that I've never felt before. And you go, but that was then and this is now. And I don't know the last time I experienced something like that. And God would have you here today to, to hear him say, you don't have to be in a stadium and you don't have to have a great worship leader and you don't have to have a great speaker. You have the beauty of Christ before you every day in the person of Jesus and you just come and you meet with me and you ask for it. 
Sometimes we go, how do I see this beauty? How do, this sounds intangible to me. How do, I, how do I perceive and see the glory and beauty of Jesus every day? I felt like I used to, but I don't anymore. How do I get there? And I would give you just the most simple, basic application that's going to tempt you to roll your eyes. Pray. Let me tell you something. The more we pray a prayer like this, God, would you open my eyes every day all the more to your beauty and to your immeasurable worth. That is not a prayer that God does not want to answer. That is not a prayer that God goes, you know what, I I don't really, that's not my will. I don't desire that. The more we pray that, the more our hearts will become aligned and we will begin to see Jesus in all of his glory and all of his worth more and more. Now, does that mean that you'll get some great vision in your toast tomorrow morning, you know, and get, see Jesus there? No, no, no. What it means is that the more that happens, our hearts begin to be enveloped more and more with him. But there's something else that the gospel does. Second thing I want to tell you is that not only does the gospel give us a vision to see, but the gospel also uh, brings death. There's a death that the gospel brings. There's a death to self that the gospel brings. Look at uh, verses 7 through 11. Let me read those for us real quick. Verse 7, chapter 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Always carrying around with us the death of Jesus. What does that mean? I think it means a number of things. It could mean that God calls, calls us to a Christian life that is, is really hard circumstantially. He calls many of his people into, into suffering, into persecution like Paul was experiencing. And, and that may be something that he calls some of us in here too. But I think that tends to happen uh, not across the board. We'll all suffer in some way. We'll all experience the glory of of God in the midst of suffering, but I think what I want to apply this morning and where I want us to focus this morning is that for all of us, for every believer, it means this, that there is a death to self that we have to carry around with us always as we identify with Jesus. This is the words of Jesus, Luke 9, 23, where he says, if anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross daily and deny himself and come after me. This daily denial, this daily dying to self because we see Jesus is so beautiful. This is what happens when we see the beauty of Christ. We become captivated with him and the gospel and what he's done for us. And we think upon it and we meditate on it. And we saturate our minds in the reality of what God has done for us through Christ. And we let the gospel sink deeper and deeper into us. And as we do that, not only do we see the beauty of Christ, but with that we see, man, there's all these things that I've been putting in, in precedence over Jesus that God is calling me to die to. The best way I know how to illustrate this is uh, from C.S. Lewis. In his book, The Great Divorce, he gives this phenomenal picture, this analogy. 
He says this, he says there's this shadowy man, this ghostly man. He kind of looks like a man, but not fully a man who is tormented by this lizard that's on his shoulder. And this lizard has become a part of him. It's attached to him. It's there. It's not something that's just perched there. He's in him, so to speak. And this man encounters an angel of glory. And this man with this lizard, this lizard is sucking the life out of this man. He's always in his ear and he's chirping constantly. And he's a source of condemnation and guilt continually in his ear. You can't do it. You're not good enough, but you need me. Life is only found in me, the lizard says. And so this angel of glory approaches this ghostly shadowy man and he says, I can kill that lizard. And the shadowy ghostly man says, no, 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 it's it's okay. It's, it's fine. I can manage it. It's quite all right. Second time, the angel of the Lord or, or angel of glory says to this shadowy man, he says, um, would you like for me to kill it? No, no, no. It's okay. You see, it's, it's gone to sleep now. It's not even an issue anymore. It's, it's, it's fine. But thanks. A third time, the angel of the Lord comes closer to this shadowy man and he says, will you let me kill it? And the shadowy man in that moment realizes this needs to die. And he says, okay. And so the angel of glory begins to burn this lizard off of this man's shoulder. And as he's doing it, the man begins to cry out in pain. You're hurting me. You're hurting me. Why would you hurt me? And the angel of glory says, no, no, no. I didn't say it wouldn't hurt. I'm not going to kill you. I'm going to kill it. But it's going to hurt in the process. But trust me. Trust me. And so he eventually kills this lizard and the lizard falls to the ground writhing in pain and agony. And as that happens, something miraculous and beautiful happens. The man changes from this shadowy figure and becomes this beautiful, strong, physical man in the way that he was created to be. And I love the picture that C.S. Lewis gives us because all of us identify with that. We all have lots and lots of these lizards on our shoulders that we protect with all that we have But we know that those are the things that are sucking the life out of us because they're really not what they claim to be and they're really not gonna give us the life that they promised to give us. And there's only one that's as beautiful and good and awesome and glorious and majestic as he claims to be and that's Jesus. And yet we see that and we see that invitation and our response to that is to go, you know what, but it's okay. I I don't really want you to touch this. I can manage it. You know, we all think we can manage our sin. And we somehow think that God is convinced by that. Or we respond like the man and say, look, it's gone to sleep. It's not even an issue anymore. It's not even there. It's just, I mean, it's there, but it's, it's, not a, it's not a big deal. And God is saying there are lizards in your life that need to die. What are those things? You know, there's all kinds of ways that we can prop things up as, as more important, more glorious than Jesus and serve them in a way to where they become these lizards in our life. Maybe, uh, maybe it's your kids. I know this is a struggle for me. Certainly we want to love our kids. We want to be faithful to raise them in the admonition of the Lord. But there's something really subtle that can begin to happen with our kids. They can become our gods. And their failures devastate us in a way that's not healthy. Why? Because their successes have become become our God. Maybe it's your spouse Maybe you look to your spouse to give you something that only Jesus can give, and then when they don't give it to you, you're bitter. And so bitterness is the lizard on your shoulder because you think you have a right to be bitter. He's not what I thought he was when I married him. 
I have a right to carry this lizard of bitterness around on my shoulder, God, and you will not touch this. She's not what I thought she was when I married her. Maybe it's a constant belittling of your spouse and those around you. Maybe it's anger and rage because in intimidating others, you feel a sense of power and control that gives you a sense of worth and attention. And you say, God, don't touch that. Maybe it's the good old American dream. Everything that the world promises and America promises and wealth and prosperity and reputation, notoriety, successes and materialism, all these things. And you've worked so hard to attain what you've attained and you've worked so hard to get the reputation that you have that if God even comes close to begin to burning that lizard off your shoulder, you yell at God and say, what are you doing? And he says, trust me, I didn't say it wouldn't hurt, but I'm better. I'm more glorious than that. I'm more beautiful than that. Trust me. There's all kinds of ways that we let lizards perch on our our shoulders. And I would trust that even in this moment right now, God is speaking to you. And you know what they are. And you have a decision to make right now. Do I let him burn that? Or do I say I can manage it? And there's a call to die to things in our lives that comes with being captivated with Jesus. And it's good. The best way I know how to sync all this together and wrap it all up together is actually from another Bible verse. It come, comes from Matthew 13, 44. Look at it with me. It says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. This verse and just one little story that Jesus tells really wraps up all that what we've been talking about this morning, where the text has been leading us this morning. Because what you have is you have a man who comes across this treasure and when he sees the worth and the value, the glory and the beauty of this treasure, he says, you know what, I, there's not even an option here. I, and don't, don't miss this, the most important words in the whole verse. In his joy goes and sells all that he has so that he may purchase the field and have the treasure. It doesn't say that in his obligation... He goes and sells all that he has. It doesn't say that in his duty against his will, he has encountered something so beautiful that he says, man, this is not even an option. This is, this is glorious. I want to take you back real quick to what Paul was doing in this passage that I want to make sure is not missed. Early in cha- earlier on in chapter 3 and into chapter 4, what What Paul is showing us is he says this, and you can read it on your own. He actually says this. He says, if the ministry of condemnation through Moses came with so much glory. Okay, what he's saying is that when Moses came off that mountain and it was the ministry of condemnation, meaning the law draws out our sin and through it we're condemned. If that came with so much glory that Moses would be radiating and glowing the way that he was. Then Paul says this, how much more will the glory that comes with the ministry of spirit and life come with glory? Here's what that means is that 
we have an opportunity, we have an invitation to come and experience the glory of God in ways through Jesus that Moses never even got close to. And so we sit here and joke about, man, it would be awesome to sit for 40 days and 40 nights with God on the Mount Sinai and and see God in that way. And what the new covenant tells us is that we have something even better. We have access to Jesus through the person, to God through the person of Jesus that brings the glory of God face to face with us and to where we see and perceive it in ways that blow our minds. And we go, it's all right. I got my lizards. I'll worship you on Sundays, but the rest of the time I, I got, I got what I need. What this story tells us is that there's a treasure that's so big and so glorious that we gladly sell all when we're captivated by it. So I'll close with this story. Uh, my son Samuel, he's 13 now, but about 10 years ago, eight, eight to 10 years ago, he was probably around five or six. I didn't do math very well there, did I? I said 10 years ago and it's, he was not three. He's 13 now, so it was about eight years ago. He was probably five. And we're talking about, I did not do well in math in school. Um, we're talking about this verse. Let me plug the Jesus Storybook Bible. If you've never used that with your kids, use it. It's awesome. And so we're walking through the Jesus Storybook Bible and it's this story. It's, it's Matthew 13, 44 and this man with the treasure in the field. And, and we're talking about it and, and I'm talking about it. And I'm saying, uh, Samuel, daddy's not perfect. And I certainly struggle with this, but Jesus is my treasure. He's the treasure. You can't miss that. Like, this is not like real gold. It's, it's a metaphor to say that Jesus wants his people to understand that I'm the treasure. And when you meet me and when you see me and you become captivated with me, then you sell all to get me. And this is how it works. And I'm going into preacher mode with my son. And the more I'm preaching and the more I'm talking about this treasure of Jesus, the wider his eyes are getting and the, his mouth is dropping. And I'm going, this is the moment of salvation. I'm about to lead my boy to Christ. And this is awesome. I can't wait to go downstairs and tell my wife, I just led Samuel to the Lord. The best husband and father ever. You know, that was what I was thinking. There was, there was all this going on inside of me, but I'm watching his face. And the more that his face is doing this, the more I'm thinking, man, he's getting it. I stop and I say, buddy, what are you thinking? He says, dad, you know what I treasure? I said, what? I thought it was going to be Jesus. He says, I treasure a big truck. <laughs> and initially, the very first thing I thought was just kind of this, wah, wah, like, oh. But then immediately, and I think it was prompted by the Holy Spirit, I, I just started to laugh and I said, me too, buddy. Me too. And it led into a conversation with him where I, I just told him about all the things, the big trucks in my life that I tend to put in front of Jesus. The good news with him is that about a year or so later, he did make a profession of faith. He did uh, say that Jesus is his treasure, to which I'm eternally grateful for the Lord's grace in his life. But for all of us, even those of us who know Jesus, we struggle with the big trucks. And God's calling us to die to those things. Let me, let me wrap up with this quote from Thomas Chalmers that says it well. This is from his famous, he's a Scottish guy, from his famous uh, sermon, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And this is a paraphrase. He was an old English dude. We don't get that, so we'll, we'll paraphrase it. It says this, Seldom do any of our habits or flaws disappear by a process of extinction through reasoning or by the mere force of mental determination. Reason and willpower are not enough, but what cannot be destroyed may be dispossessed. The only way to dispossess the heart 
of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. And I would just, my two senses, I would uh, insert there by the expulsive power of a more beautiful one. It is then that the heart brought under the mastery of one great and predominant affection is delivered from the tyranny of its former desires and the only way that deliverance is possible. Simply put, you've got something that looks beautiful to you, but you know it's not what you need to be chasing after. Put Jesus in front of it. He's more beautiful. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this time together. Thank you for your word that leads us and shapes us and guides us and corrects us, but more than anything that shows us you. Father, I pray for the people in this room, some of which have never seen the beauty of Christ. I pray that right now in this very moment that, they, that you would remove the veil, that they would begin to see you and all your glory, come to faith in you. I pray for others in this room who have seen and perceived the glory of Christ and Jesus, but it's been a while. They have run after other lovers less wild when you were the great lover of our souls. They've chased after things less beautiful, and this morning is a time that you are calling them to repent and to let you burn those lizards off. God, would you do your work as we continue to worship now? In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.